And if they wanted to do things such as the appendix you mentioned, which is this daily list of possible Christmas devotionals families could do, I also have between each chapter a two-page spread, which actually explores the traditional themes of Advent and shows how families, if they want, don't want to do a daily Christmas devotional, could perhaps at least take you know, a half an hour, an hour together as a family each Sunday evening before Christmas and reflect on these themes. Yeah. So that's how the book was set up. Then, as you mentioned, I had an appendix to kind of give added ideas for families. And there's also an appendix about my son. It was a beautiful story. And it, I kind of felt like after we were done, we um, kind of hung out for a while. You know, you, I'm reading the book and I was like, gosh, I feel like I, I know, know your family. Dude. Yeah, that's I know right. this guy. His kids, I'm wondering how they're doing. Yeah, um, and just so that so our listeners know why there's an appendix about my son, my son has autism. And I really enjoyed how you kind of brought that into how it kind of changed Christmas, changed the season. Just it made things a little more meaningful as a parent. Lest people think that I've forgotten all my scholarly training and this is just kind of a how-to book for families, one of the things I was really trying to do is make that stuff accessible. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture digging deeper, and having a whole lot of fun, learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, I am Blake Dalton, your host for this episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Today I'm here with Eric Huntsman, author of the book, Good Tidings of Great Joy. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for having me today. Glad to be here. I am so grateful. This has been a great book for me to read and to look over. Just a little bit about Professor Huntsman. He received his bachelor's degree in classical Greek and Latin from Brigham Young University, his master's and PhD in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania. He joined the faculty at BYU in 1994 and later joined the religious education department in ancient scripture in 2003. That's right. I started in classics. For for nine years, I was teaching Greek and Latin, Greek and Roman history, mythology, all that pagan stuff. (laughs) As I I joke with my old colleagues, then I got religion, went over religious education and began to teach ancient scripture, where I specialize in New Testament. This book, Good Tidings of Great Joy, one thing that was really cool I liked in the appendix of the book is you gave a day-by-day kind of devotional kind of thing that you can do for Christmas from day one to 25 for December where you give like songs or scriptures to read and stories to read for families. And so I right. thought that was great. Yeah, and maybe we can come back to that towards the end of the interview. But, yeah. but the idea was how can we take the celebration of Christmas and the text that teach us about it and connect it with families? So the book itself is divided into five chapters. So I take the four chapters that deal with the infancy story, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, and then I have a fifth chapter, which are Book of Mormon Witnesses of the Divine Conception, Miraculous Birth of Jesus. And so so that's how it's set up. Mm -hmm. The reason I chose the four chapters to start with is the traditional Advent season is the four Sundays before Christmas. Now, a lot of Latter-day Saints, unless they come from Germany or served a mission there or have Lutheran or Catholic friends, may not be as familiar with Advent, but it's a wonderful custom that arose in the Middle Ages, which is celebrating the Advent or the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And so I I set the book up in such a way that an individual or families could read one chapter a week for the four weeks leading up to Christmas. 
And if they wanted to do things such as the appendix you mentioned, which is this daily list of possible Christmas devotionals families could do, I also have between each chapter a two-page spread, which actually explores the traditional themes of Advent and shows how families, if they want, don't want to do a daily Christmas devotional, could perhaps at least take you know, a half an hour, an hour together as a family each Sunday evening before Christmas and reflect on these themes. Yeah. So that's how the book was set up. Then, as you mentioned, I had an appendix to kind of give added ideas for families. And there's also an appendix about my son. It was a beautiful story. And it, I kind of felt like after we were done, we kind of hung out for a while. You know, you, I'm reading the book and I was like, gosh, I feel like I, I know, know your this family. Dude. Yeah, that's I know right. this guy. His kids, I'm wondering how they're doing. Yeah, um, and just so that so our listeners know why there's an appendix about my son, my son has autism. And I really enjoyed how you kind of brought that into how it kind of changed Christmas, changed the season. Just it made things a little more meaningful as a parent. Lest people think that I've forgotten all my scholarly training, and this is just kind of a how-to book for families, one of the things I was really trying to do is make that stuff accessible. But in the narrative section of each chapter, it really is a serious, almost Mm section-by-section explication of the text of Matthew and Luke and gives the historical background, what was going on. I explain words with their Greek origins and really try to give more context than perhaps we have. The way it works for me, in fact, in the introduction, I tell this story a little bit. I was originally, as you mentioned, in classics teaching Greek and Roman history. But, you know, avocationally, I wanted to use my Greek and my history to understand the Bible better. And so this was just something that grew for years even before I wrote the text. I would always pull out all these commentaries in December and really study the infancy narratives. And there was one particular year where Christmas Eve fell on a Saturday, a Sunday, actually. Oh, okay. And it's a little awkward because like, we have all these family traditions, but they weren't all Sabbath-friendly, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it ended up being one of the most beautiful Christmases we've celebrated because a lot of the fun and busy stuff we had usually do on Christmas Eve, we had to do on the 23rd, which was Saturday. And then Sunday morning, I was bishop at the time. We only had sacrament meetings. So we went and celebrated Christmas as a ward family, had a wonderful Christmas program with music and scripture reading. And then we came home. And, you know, we lit the candles and we put the, you know, hot apple cider on the, on the stove. And, and the house was filled with the smells and the sounds of Christmas time. And I pulled out my commentaries because I thought, I'm going to study the birth of Jesus. And it seemed so sterile compared to the feast I just had with my ward family. And so I, I closed my commentaries and put them away. I said, I'm just going to read the text. And I read Matthew 1 through 2. And I read Luke 1 through 2. I mean, you don't usually have that much time on Christmas mm-hmm. Eve. We all four chapters. And there was some beauty there. And I thought, you know, I'd like to share this, not just the scholarly background, but the experience I have just had with the word of the Lord. And since we can't always cram it in on Christmas Eve, this idea of spreading it out over four weeks. So the way I envision the book is the way I kind of try to do it. I do a lot of studying on my own, and then I take some of that and share it with my family. And so someone may want to read this book on her own or his own, but then maybe take some of the things that they read or some of my ideas in the appendix so they can have some family celebrations of Christmas. So it really is a hybrid work. I don't know if you'd call it devotional writing, mm-hmm. biblical scholarship, gospel scholarship. It's a little of all of that, I think. Let's just talk about a couple things here, like you were saying with the scholarly aspects of it. You talk about how the first and second century Christians, they kind of felt like celebrating birthdays were pagan, you know, and that was kind of a improper practice. So tell us a little bit about how Christmas became acceptable, or it became acceptable to start 
celebrating Christ's birth. Well, it's interesting because nowhere in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, is there any injunction to celebrate the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. implicit, but it never says, thou shalt celebrate Christmas. Yeah. In fact, there are some very conservative Christian groups, the Puritans who settled New England, the Jehovah Witnesses today, who don't celebrate holidays at all because they're not in the Bible. The first Christians, as far as we can tell, celebrated the Lord's Day. That became their Sabbath, where they celebrated the sacrament each week and sang and, and testified to each other. Some of the earliest Jewish Christians continued, it appears, to celebrate some of the biblical feast. In the book of Acts, Paul hurries home to Jerusalem to celebrate. It says Eastern or King James, but it actually means Passover. So that's, that's kind of an English rendering. But they didn't really celebrate holidays. And as you noted, birthdays certainly weren't celebrated by Christians because this was a very pagan custom. In ancient Egypt, you would celebrate the birth of the god or the marriage of the god or the birth of Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the context of first century Christianity in the Greco-Roman world, it was the birth of the emperor, the wedding of the emperor, the accession of the emperor, the death of the emperor. And so this was seen as actually a form of soft idolatry, that you should only be worshiping God. There was nothing that encouraged the early Christians to do this at all until the 200s, the 3rd century probably. And then there is the sense, well, you know, if you can worship the birth or the great events of a false god, why can't we do it for the true and living God or for our Lord and Savior? And so that's when they began to slowly move towards this idea of celebrating the birth of Christ. And then, of course, the question was, when was he born? And so there's, there's this issue of when they celebrated anciently, why we celebrate. With that, as we're talking about the birth of Christ, there are some things that you pointed out and talked about in your book, and I just want to ask about, there's two books that talk about the birth of Christ in the Gospels. You know, Matthew covers it, and Luke covers it, and they cover different aspects of it. Is there significance in the fact that Mark and John don't necessarily cover it? They kind of leave it to Luke and, and Matthew to... To talk about it? Well, the majority of New Testament scholars believe that Mark was the first gospel written, probably in the mid to late 60s. Matthew appears to be the second one after that, probably in the 70s, Luke after that, and then the usual dating of John is much later in the 90s. So some of this has to do with when the gospels were written. If we presume that Mark was, in fact, the first gospel written, and if, as some have argued, Mark, the evangelist, was actually representing a lot of the testimony of Peter, he was reflecting what Peter preached. And if you look at the speeches of Peter in the book of Acts, it always starts out, God sent his son who went about doing good, who suffered, died, rose again, and sent into heaven. This is what we call the apostolic kerygma, the proclamation. And that's how the early apostles preached. And the Gospel of Mark actually follows that very outline. And so it starts with Jesus' baptism, because that's when the ministry began. That's when he went about doing good. And then a full third of that gospel has to do with the suffering, death, and resurrection. In the Gospel of Mark, the witness that Jesus is the Son of God is God himself. If you look carefully at the Mark in baptism, when Jesus is baptized and rises out of the water and the heavens are ripped asunder, the voice from heaven doesn't say, this is my beloved Son. That's Matthew. It says, thou art my beloved Son. It's this personal witness to Jesus from God his Father. that he is the son of God. And so it is God's own testimony that is the son, which is validated by Jesus's authoritative ministry as he works miracles, which is another book for another time. (laughs) What most of us think is that Matthew, writing later, used the basic outline of Mark and wove into it material that Mark didn't have. A lot of sermons, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, and some sayings of Jesus that Mark didn't have. What's very interesting about both of the infancy narratives, Matthew 1 through 2 and Luke 1 through 2, is they bear all the signs of having been written last, not first in their Gospels. 
It's almost as if Matthew had followed Mark's outline, written the story, and then went back and wrote a preface. Either Matthew, as he finished this work and ends it on this high note of what Jesus did for us, maybe he looked back at how it began and said, I haven't really answered the question who he was. Or perhaps the Spirit worked with him and said, something's missing from this story. And so then he went back to write about the divine conception miraculous birth. Because you could be led to think, if you just read Mark, that Jesus, the Son of God, we call this adoptionist Christology because God adopted him at that moment. But Matthew's text makes it clear that Jesus was divinely conceived and miraculously born. And then Luke follows that basic pattern. Now, as for John, John has a much more cosmic perspective, and he has what we call a very high Christology. Jesus is the Son of God because he's always been the Son of God. The, in the beginning was the Word, yeah. the Word was with God, and the Word was was God, and it's what we call pre-existent Christology. And so he doesn't have the story of the birth because what's really important to him is Jesus' selection, the premortal council of heaven. That's why my book only focuses on Matthew 1 through 2 and Luke 1 through 2. Yeah. It's just phenomenal to, to look at some of these things. I really liked some of the comparisons you made to especially how Matthew is constantly trying to remind the reader that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And he'll constantly say, thus, you know, thus the scripture is fulfilled, or thus he did this because of the scripture, this. I really loved how you brought out a comparison with Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, and the Joseph of Egypt. Tell me a little bit more about those. Yeah, that in comparison. fact, the chapter of Matthew 1, I, I subtitled Son of David. Yeah. And the whole purpose of that chapter, through the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of that chapter, and the Annunciation to Joseph the Carpenter, is to show that Jesus was the legal heir of David's throne. And so, as you say, we have these, what we call, formula quotations, where the evangelist says, and thus was fulfilled the word to Isaiah, etc. And so it's really stressing that part, who he was. Now, what he also does is he establishes a lot of the other themes of Matthew. So, for instance, Jesus is the new Moses. Now, you see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Moses goes up on Sinai, Jesus goes up on the Mount, yeah. and you see all that. In the same way, just as Moses was born as the deliverer of Israel and in a wicked king, Pharaoh tried to kill him, Jesus is born in a wicked king, Herod tries to kill him. But this idea of using Old Testament models continues, mm -hmm. and so Joseph the carpenter is based upon Joseph in Egypt. And I like this because Joseph doesn't get a lot of press, right? Yeah. He seems to have been dead by the time Jesus started his mortal ministry. And so we only have him in the infancy narratives, and not very much in Luke. It's mostly in Matthew. And so I, I really love the figure of Joseph. In fact, I have a sidebar article called, you know, Joseph and Jesus, Our Children and Us, because he is such a wonderful mo model for what I would call righteous fatherhood. He, like Joseph in Egypt, received inspiration, revelation for his family. He received it in the form of dreams. I mean, it's almost a one-to-one -one yeah. correspondence. Joseph brought his family into Egypt to save them from famine. Joseph the carpenter takes his family to Egypt to save them from Herod. But back to this idea of, of Joseph being this wonderful model for fathers today. In fact, in the Roman Catholic tradition, he's the patron saint of foster fathers, adoptive oh, wow. fathers. Okay. And, you know, I often think of this wonderful man who loved his wife and loved her child, even though it wasn't his and received revelation and did what it took to protect them and care for them. And he gets so little recognition, he's not even in the rest of the Bible. And so as I look at my role as a father, and in a very real way, our children aren't ours either, right? Yeah. They're children of heavenly parents, and they are a sacred trust given to us. And so I just think he's a wonderful model. You know, I often say to my students, it doesn't matter how many books I've written or how many talks I've given or what I accomplished in my life, the two things I want to be remembered for at the end of my life 
are that I love Jesus and I love my family. So in fact, with, with that, with Joseph, I um, always tell the young women in my ward and the young men, the young women should date a Joseph, should look for a Joseph. And the young men should be Joseph because Joseph is completely respectful. And I like you said the young men should be Joseph because traditionally we've put too much of the weight sometimes on the women to mm-hmm. hold the standards when really what we need to be calling is for young men to be men of God and men of yeah. Christ. And they need to be respectful to women. Absolutely. So it works both ways. As we're moving into a more egalitarian phase of history in the church, I think it's really important that we look at complementary relationships and egalitarian relationships yeah. working together. What Luke does in chapters 1 through 2 is he uses his characters as contemporary Israelites. So you actually, it's really fun because in Luke 1 through 2, you have three pairs. So you have Zacharias and Elizabeth, who are kind of Abraham and Sarah figures. Yeah. You have Joseph and Mary. And then at the end, you have two prophetic figures. You have Simeon and you have Anna, who are kind of like Isaiah and Holder the prophetess. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is it's actually Luke's way of linking his story with the Hebrew Bible. In fact, Luke 1 through 2 in Greek, read like the Septuagint the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Luke even mimics the style of the Old Testament to show that these figures are the bridge figures between God working through his people Israel and now is about to work through his son Jesus. Yeah. And, and so he's, he really ties that together beautifully. And, and in terms of Mary being this Hannah figure, if you think back to Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, this is the woman who couldn't have a child, and she prays. She goes to the tabernacle, she prays, and the, the priest Eli, you know, says, you, your prayer will be answered, and she has a miraculous birth. Yeah. It's not a divine conception, but it's a miraculous birth, and she gives that child Samuel, who Shemuel means name of the Lord, name of Yahweh, not name of God, excuse me, Shemuel, and gives him to God, and it's very much like Mary bringing Jesus to the temple and giving Jesus back to his father for his service, and Hannah... It's a beautiful piece of Hebrew poetry, sings this song, and it's this beautiful psalm. It's actually poetic in Hebrew, talking about how God has done great things through Hannah and is going to save his people. And the famous Magnificat, my soul shall magnify the Lord, that Mary sings when she visits Elizabeth is based on the song of Hannah. So there's this wonderful parallelism between these two figures. Let me ask with Mary and her respect that she has throughout all of Christendom. And she's been sainted, and she's endeared to so many. Do we really, as religious followers of Christ and followers of the Bible, do we really understand how great Mary really is? Well, it's interesting that you ask how we, including Latter-day Saints, treat Mary, and whether we give her the respect or the appreciation we should. Interestingly, a lot of Latter-day Saints, like many Protestants, don't view her with as much esteem as, say, our Roman Catholic friends do or the Eastern Orthodox, perhaps some high church Protestants like Episcopalians and Lutherans. Remember that historically, many Protestants thought that the Roman Catholics had overdone it, mm-hmm. and anything that wasn't biblical, they weren't going to do. And so I think Latter-day Saints started from this position that that's not part of their culture to really recognize Mary. Now, it's understandable historically why the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox did a lot of the building up of Mary, because in the ancient world, there were a lot of mother goddesses. And some people, and I think this is a little unfair, some people try to trace it directly to, you know, Artemis in Ephesus or Isis in Egypt or that kind of thing. But what I would counter is I would say ancient peoples were always looking for the divine feminine. Everyone wants mom. 
And because since the fall, our understanding of Heavenly Mother has been veiled and we don't have direct revelation, people are looking to kind of fill that void. But Mary is significant, and I think Latter-day Saints, after our Catholic and Orthodox friends, probably should hold her in more esteem than other Christians do, because we have the Book of Mormon. And First Nephi 11, Alma 7, directly prophesy of Mary and of her role even though the Gospel of John doesn't tell the infancy story. It has this wonderful story in John 2. It's the first sign, miraculous sign, turning water into wine, which takes place at the instigation of the mother of Jesus. And if you go into that story, and I've written about this in other places, I actually think the symbolism of water into wine is not just indicating that Jesus was Jehovah, the creator. He organized the elements. He can now reorganize them. I actually think the symbolism of water into wine is a symbol of the incarnation. The divine Jehovah that was spirit has become the man Jesus who's flesh and blood. And how does that happen? It happens through the medium of his mother Mary. Now, the divine conception relaxed birth as they're laid out in Matthew and especially Luke. Let us know that Mary was a witness of Jesus's origins. John 19 puts her at the foot of the cross at his death. So she's a witness of his atoning sacrifice. We often talk of apostles as special witnesses of Christ, and they are. But if you were to ask me who the greatest witness of Jesus was, I'd say it was his mother. Who more than Mary knew that Jesus was truly the Son of God? And not just the divine conception. Luke even tells us in that account that every time shepherds or people came, she treasured those things in her heart, right? And we know from John that she watched her son die. And that was prophesied in Luke 2. The last of what we call the canticles in Luke, these little songs people sing, is the Anunc Dimittis, where Simeon prophesies that the little baby he's holding in his arms in the temple is the promised Messiah. But then he turns to Mary and prophesies of his death and says, a spear shall pierce thy heart. I don't know if you've been to St. Peter's in Rome, but you've, I'm sure you've seen a picture of the great Michelangelo statue of the Pieta. And that's a little bit of artistic license. The scriptures don't describe Mary holding the body of her son, but we can presume that happened. That was the practice, is when you take a, an executed criminal down from the cross, you deliver the body to the family. And that image of her holding her son in her lap, and the way Michelangelo portrays that is so beautiful, because in this moment of her greatest grief, and I'm sure some of our listeners have lost a child or lost a loved one, there's the serenity about Mary that she recognizes that through her pain and her son's death is going to come eternal life. I think we should recognize and appreciate Mary. You know, you mentioned earlier that Mary and Joseph can be wonderful models, not just for our young men and young women, but for us as husbands and wives and prospective husbands and prospective wives. But Mary is such a wonderful model of true discipleship. Talk about more that Christmas day when you're reading the, the Book of Mormon. And what can the Book of Mormon do to help Well, it's us interesting because when you get really into the biblical scholarship, one of the first things that commentaries on the infancy stories tell you is that Matthew and Luke disagree. Yeah. That there are problems here, and this isn't historically accurate, and this doesn't seem likely. But what's really interesting is if you are to go through the Book of Mormon prophecies, which I do in chapter 5 of the book, which I call Further Glad Tidings, and you see the tr things that are truly important. Mary is a chosen and, and precious vessel and that Jesus is brought forth by the power of God at Bethlehem. You know, there are five or six elements there. Those are the things where Matthew and Luke actually do agree. And so the Book of Mormon gives us those most salient pieces that are critical for saving testimony. And then you go to the received Gospels and you see how those saving truths are part of beautiful literary tellings. Now, I'm not saying that the Gospel authors are manufacturing things, but I always tell my students, Scripture is theology, not history. And so a lot of times they use events and stories to teach greater theological truths. Matthew's not concerned about detail in the genealogy. 
he's concerned about illustrating that Jesus, through Joseph, is the son of David. And so then you can appreciate that more that way. There's tons of scholarship in the book, and you have read and studied lots and lots of things, classical writings and the Gospels. How do we take these and put it into our devotion at Christmas time and really make it matter to our family? Well, it's like I was saying as I was talking about Scripture being primarily theology and not just history. It's wonderful to have all of these details, but you can't eviscerate it. That Christmas Eve when I was looking at commentaries, it was sterile. So even though there are a lot of things in our Christmas celebrations that may not be strictly textually based, it's not wrong to celebrate them. So I have talked for years about the difference of the Mathean infancy narrative and the Lucan infancy narrative to the point that my daughter, when she was about 14 or 15, when we'd set up our nativity, she would separate all the figures and have a Mathean side and a Lucan side. <laughs> because the reality is the wise men were not there that night. They and the shepherds were never there. And so she could separate everyone that way. But that kind of takes the fun out of it. When we do our Christmas play that she and my son write, they put all those characters together. So what I've tried to do, once again, I told you how I wrote this book, is all the details are there for you for your study. But the Advent discussions between each chapter and the appendix with suggestions for daily Christmas devotionals, a scripture, a story, a carol, those are things that you can do that bring the spirit and the joy back into it. So I still say, celebrate Christmas with abandon. Just make sure Jesus is in it. And that's what's been so wonderful about our family celebration of Advent. We brought Book of Mormon and Latter-day Saint scriptures into it, as well as the traditional Old Testament scriptures. So it's really kind of an LDS Advent. And then every day in December, our family, for instead of just doing a normal scripture study or prayer that night, we come together and we tell a Christmas story and we read a scripture that's leading to the birth of Jesus and we sing a Christmas carol before family prayer. And so in the midst of all the other kinds of traditional commercialized Christmas, there's always Jesus. I mean, you probably notice I always call him Jesus and not the Savior of Christ yeah. because he's a person and that's his name. And particularly at this phase of his ministry, he's a baby. You know, the idea that the creator of the universe, the almighty Jehovah, could come down and become a helpless baby, so helpless that he had to be in diapers, right? That's what swaddling clothes are. It's a miracle. It's one of the great mysteries of the history of this universe. And when you have that awe at Christmas, as well as the hallelujah and the joy of the birth, that's what I share with my children, more so than just the scholarship. I have found that I can teach a lot of interesting things about the scriptures and bring a lot of scholarship as long as it is anchored with devotional moments of truth and spirit. For our listeners, Eric has a blog that he writes. Well, it's called LDS Seasonal Materials, and yeah. so I actually have ideas for families that they can use at all of the holidays that tie them back to scriptural stories and gospel truths. And so a lot of this material is available free. You don't have to go buy the book, although I'd be thrilled if you did. <laughs> um, but if you want to look at some things now as Christmas is approached, I'd be thrilled. And I want to give one other shout out. This is a little bit of activism here. As I mentioned, my son has autism, and the appendix is called Christmas with Autism. And that's reproduced in the blogs as well. Not just children with disabilities, but people who are alone or depressed have lost a loved one. This happiest season of the year is the hardest for so many. Yeah, it can be. And it's a time when we really need to bring the spirit to people who can't feel it because they're overwhelmed by depression or loss, or in my son's case, autism. And we've found ways of helping him share that joy. And so I hope people who 
have family members or loved ones in those situations might take advantage of some of those resources as well. And we will post those uh, links to the the blog in the show notes uh, for this podcast. My final question for you is, if you could meet anyone in the scriptures or in church history other than Joseph Smith and Jesus, who would it be and why? Well, you took Jesus off the list, yeah. did you? Because that's obviously the one yeah, I want to exactly. see. exactly. I know. We've already talked about them, Mary and Joseph. It'd be great to see how they treat each other. I want to thank them for giving us Jesus. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. All right, so in Doctrine and Covenants 24, Joseph was told that in temporal labors, that's not your calling. You know, I always thought when I read that scripture, that is the one revelation you don't want to receive. (laughs) By the way, you'll never have money and you'll always struggle. Right. Right. And so, uh, you know, they've been struggling up till now and they're just told, hey, it's going to continue. And so Joseph, sow your fields and then go back to Colesville, end of the Saints in New York. And you'll have to look to them for support. It's being made clear to Emma and to Joseph that they're going to continue to struggle financially, that because they are going to be devoted to the ministry, that they will have to look to others often to help with their temporal affairs. And and we see that throughout Joseph's life, that he does have to depend on the generosity of church members to provide for his family. And that's told to him quite explicitly here. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.